So guys, we just sat down with Rosalind Kent from Plants First Nutrition. If you would like to find her Instagram, it's Plants First Nutrition. Um, she helps people heal their gut, uh, take control of plant-based eating, and she's just an all-round top, top person. Um, so if you'd like to touch base with her, make sure you go check out her Instagram and uh, look forward to showing you guys this episode. Hey guys, today this is episode number five of the Plant Podcast. We have a very special guest on, Rosalind Kent, who is a holistic nutritionist who helps females uh, win back their gut microbiome integrity. And uh, I wanted to talk to her all things gut microbiome can improve health through plants. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, James. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, excellent. So um, I guess just to kick things off, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got into doing what you're doing and, and maybe a little bit of background of where you started and what kind of triggered you to, you know, dive down the rabbit hole of, you know, all things nutrition and gut microbiome. Yeah, and rabbit hole it was indeed, <laughs> I won't lie. Um, so I basically started with my own gut health journey. It's essentially where things started for me. I was that kid that had all of the, you know, quote, upset stomach issues. And that carried with me for a very long time until I was in high school, late high school, grade 12 is when things really escalated. And a lot of people make fun of, you know, IBS and gut health issues and symptoms regarding the gut. And that was the case for me. I definitely got teased a little bit because I was always dealing with something. But I think it really escalated because of the stress I was dealing with. I applied for a scholarship and I ended up getting it. But there was a lot of pressure to get some financial help for school. And I just felt the need to really excel in high school so that I could do better in university. And I put all this pressure on myself and I'm kind of a type A person when it comes to that stuff. So I think there was just a lot of pressure getting into universities and all that stuff. So yeah, things got really bad for me in high school. And there was times when I'd want to go out and socialize with friends or I'd want to go, you know, to a friend's birthday party or even, yeah, whatever it was, like a school social event. And I would have to stay home because I was in so much pain. Like, I, I don't think a lot of people really understand the severity that, of the pain that can come with even IBS or even more so with IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease, uh, which is kind of the next step, that autoimmune side of things. But for me, it was just IBS. So I started to seek out help. My parents were like, okay, you need to do something about this. So I went to a gastroenterologist because that's typically the first step. Well, I think I went to my doctor first and they're like, okay, go see a GI specialist. And GI specialists are supposed to be like the top rung in terms of help you're going to receive for your gut health. And they know so much about anatomy and physiology of the gut. But honestly, this GI doc didn't mention the word microbiome once to me, uh, didn't mention diet or lifestyle changes to me at all, except for like go see a counselor. Uh, they, you know, he did connect stress. He's like, okay, it seems like this is something to do with your stress levels. And I was like, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. It's gotten worse since I've gotten more stressed in my life. And yeah, it was just, it was really disappointing. Like I think my mom spent, because she was helping me, thank goodness, spent $900 to bypass the six month waiting list so I could get to see this guy. And he was, you know, I mean, trying to be nice here. He was just overweight, didn't look so healthy, like older gentleman who didn't really quite understand this. Um, how old was I? 17 year old girl sitting in his chair across from him. And I just, I don't know, I walked away with a prescription medication that I never filled and essentially the suggestion to Google the low FODMAP diet, which we can talk about, but it's a really strict elimination diet that a lot of people follow in an attempt to feel better and reduce their symptoms. And it often does that, but it comes at a cost. And also just with food restriction, there's all these other issues, right? So 
I didn't do any of it. Like, truthfully, I didn't do any of it. And so things didn't really shift for me until university. And in university, I watched Cowspiracy with my partner at the time. And I was like, okay, this is not good. Animal agriculture is destroying our planet. All right, I'm going to do something. I was fired up. And honestly, I was still dealing with all of the gut health stuff. Like that never really went away. I think parts of it may have gotten better as I got more settled into university, but it was always with me. And going plant-based was an overnight thing for me. And it, I would say more vegan than whole food plant-based for sure. At first, it was, it was a quick transition, but it was a sloppy one, meaning like I didn't know how to cook for myself. It was very much a, an experimental period in my life. And I mean, I just, I don't even know what I would cook, but it was, it was, I just remember feeling really like, oh, this doesn't taste good. Like, what is this meal? I don't even know what to call this. Uh, so it was very much fueled by the environmental side of things. But slowly, but surely, as I started to you know, follow more people on Instagram and follow health experts and learn a little bit more about IBS, because that's essentially what the GI doc I had, um, you know, I, I realized there's more to this diet than just the environmental side of things. And I got a lot of back from my parents. Like my mom, I remember like almost crying on the phone. She was so concerned for me. I mean, love my mom. She's so on board now. She understands everything now. But at the time she's like, what are you doing with your diet? Like you're going to be so malnourished. Like she was really, really worried about me. Uh, but, you know, it's all changed for the better for me since then. It took a lot of learning in the process. So I went back to school after I graduated uh, university, I studied communications, totally different. I did marketing stuff, entered into the corporate world, realized this is not for me. Went back to school for nutrition at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition. I think it was in 2017, uh, 2018, and then graduated. And I was like, okay, I'm going to help other women walk through the same problem that I did. And honestly, it took me a while, even after going plant-based, to really resolve my gut health issues because there was so much more involved. Again, it went back to the stress. I had to go back to the thing that it started with. And so I had to really transform my lifestyle in terms of how I was prioritizing rest and sleep and stress and all of that stuff had to be a focus in addition to the dietary stuff. Like it wasn't just all or nothing when it comes to the diet. So yeah, it, it changed a lot over the years for me in terms of how my symptoms have progressed and I, and I feel fantastic now. Like it's night and day compared to where I was. And I don't, I don't really get symptoms anymore unless I am, you know, really indulging or having a few too many drinks or what have you, right? So there's definitely that balance aspect, but I know where that's coming from. And so I like to educate my clients on the same in terms of having that balance, um, eating whole food plant-based. Like I'm 100% plant-based. Most of my clients get like 80 to 90% or sometimes often 100% there. Uh, but having that balance and flexibility to also enjoy your life and like have a beer on the weekends or things like that. So yeah, that's how I got here. I started my business during the pandemic. And everything's been online since. And I have clients who ask me, oh, do you see people in person in Vancouver, which is where I live? And I don't actually just because I love being online and I love to work from home. And that's actually a part of my stress management formula is being able to work from home. And yeah, it's been really successful ever since. I uh, started up a group program and all that stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about eventually. That is so cool. And I think the the thing that I've seen in um, in just throughout my you know, last 15 years, I had a, a partner who probably went down the same path as you had these buckling cramp feeling upset yeah. stomach, like just the instant anything went in her mouth was just onset agony for the next 90 minutes. And it, it, that lasted every day, every meal for the better part of six to eight months. And trying to find the root cause went down, down the same path 
and tried to find the root cause of what was causing such an upset stomach. Uh, was it went to a gastroenterologist, did the FODMAP diet, took out everything um, that we thought could have been triggering it, and it came down to stress. Stress was the one thing mm. that it was. It was working in the corporate world, having a boss on your back, just you know, cracking that whip, trying to make you do things, you know, being scared about going into work that you might be reprimanded for something. Those types of anxiety or, or emotional issues were the root cause. Everything else was great. Training was good, um, even though it's a stress in a way, but it was nice to get out and to do fun things, go and do adventure races and things like that. But it came down to the work environment for her in particular. And then it just got to the point where we said, hey, go and spend two weeks in Bali. She went to Bali after three days of being in Bali pain went away absolutely just went away yeah. everything was gone Easy. she was eating good food she wasn't stressed and she said James the pain is gone like I can't I, I'm having a meal now and it's not hurting what what is going on here and then progressively throughout the two weeks of her being there it got better and better and better and she got back and she goes I'm quitting my job she quit a job and it never came back good for her <laughs> good for her that's so funny that's exactly what I was experiencing too I had terrible bosses and people say oh you know, people of whatever generation this is, whatever generation I'm even a part of these days, like, oh, we're picky about our jobs. But I honestly don't even think it's that. I think we put up with less BS. And yeah. I think like, and terrible bosses and people to who make us feel little. And Absolutely. yeah, I had the exact same experience. So I'm really glad she figured that out. And it's funny because she went to Bali and like, you, I'm sure you've heard people talk about Bali belly, but yeah. like, obviously yeah. for her, the stress was just the main thing, which is insane. It was a miracle cure for sure. And it was also a good thing to realize how connected your emotions and your feelings and your thoughts are connected to your gut. That was like, that really drove home for me. It's like, okay, wow. So there is a bigger connection than, you know, probably what I had first thought about the, you know, the, the, the brain gut connection. And I was just like, okay, wow. So we can, if we can affect our chemistry on a, a thought or a feeling or an emotional level, you know, what, what is that doing? And for me, um, being an athlete, I was like, how can I enhance my performance by the way that I feel and what things can I do day to day to make me feel a particular way that might increase my performance? And what I found was, I'm trying to relate it, I always competed way better when I was just happy. I could be mm. and having a good time and not taking things too seriously. Uh, even though I like to compete at a high level, um, making sure that when I did compete, I was in a state of mind or that arousal level that allowed me just to get in the zone, be happy, um, be uh, not so stressed about the outcome and rather just being in the moment. And that made me compete so much better. So I think this is so relatable and we'll, we'll get onto how the gut can affect all those types of things as well as we progress on. But tell us a little bit about um, the steps that you take when you see uh, or or, or a, a new client touches base with you and says, hey, I've got issues with my gut. I'm, I might be constipated. I've got, you know, cramping issues in my gut. Um, I don't go to the toilet for three days or four days at a time. Can you help me? So what kind of steps do you go down to try and figure out what could be the root cause of, of, these, um, of these issues? Yeah, so anytime we're talking about um, imbalance in the gut and symptoms that present, uh, like you said, constipation, diarrhea, you know, irregular bowel movements either way, bloating, gas, like anxiety goes 
back to that nausea, um, the cramping and all of that. We're talking about dysbiosis. So it's funny because, and I'll explain what this means in a second, but you mentioned constipation. Constipation is actually the number one thing that people come to me for because it is so common. It is just crazy how many people are struggling with not having fully emptying bowel movements every single day because you can be going every day and still be constipated. But anyways, dysbiosis is essentially just what I described, like negative changes in gut bacteria. So the bacteria in your gut have changed to the point where there is um, a lot of pathogenic bacteria, not enough uh, beneficial species of microbes, including uh, fiber-degrading bacteria, because we know that the ones that break down fiber are the ones that are creating uh, really cool compounds called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are going to be directly repairing the gut in a multitude of ways. And like we could have an entire episode talking about them. But we know that when you're dealing with that dysbiosis, there's that imbalance. So increase in pathogenic, um, a lot of also bile-loving bacteria. So bacteria that are going to be present when you eat a lot of high-fat foods, because we know bile multiplies fat. So typically speaking, the standard American diet is, or at least some offshoot of that, is what's going to tip someone into that dysbiotic state in addition to antibiotic use, in addition to stress, in addition to other poor lifestyle habits like not sleeping um, or having lots of chemicals in your house cleaning. Like all these things are going to contribute, right? Like they're all going to play a role. So when I have a client come on board, first off, we're trying to figure out, okay, where's the dysbiosis coming from for you? Typically it's diet. But you'd be surprised. I have a lot of people that come to me who are eating a really fantastic diet, like whole food, plant-based, diverse diet. And in that situation, we're usually looking at those other things that we talked about, like the stress and all of that, sure. uh, which is a lot harder to tackle for sure. But yeah, usually dietary things are going to be the first thing we look at um, and stress factors and so on and so forth. But a lot of people who come to me, they're usually, they've just come out of that rabbit hole of food sensitivity testing which we know based on the research, like there really is no research to support these as valid. They're not, they're not a way, they're a huge waste of money and they're not worth your money. Uh, food sensitivity testing, they've usually had like a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, which are great to get if you're not sure if you have like IBD, which is a lot more serious, inflammatory bowel disease. And they've tried usually other things like the GI map test, which again, really not a lot of research just to support the fact that this is accurate, or at least we know that it gives a lot of false positives and false negatives. So they've done a lot of the testing stuff and they've received a lot of supplement uh, or supplement recommendations, I should say. And they may be told, been told to focus on like macronutrients and balancing that, which again, for, I will say for like sports performance, important maybe, but not so much from a gut health side of things. Um, or they've been told to cut out gluten and dairy, which dairy, fantastic gluten. Well, we have some questions around that. I always have questions around that. And so what we focus on doing first and foremost is slowly transitioning them to a more diverse, plant-forward, high-fiber diet. But if they're dealing with constipation, we need to get the bowels in a rhythm first. Because if they're not emptying, when we add in all that fiber, they're going to get way more back. Because fiber is going to be fermented by our beneficial gut bacteria, which is great. But from a gas and bloating perspective, that's actually just going to be creating more gas production. And in a normal situation, healthy bowel movement, you know, that's not going to be a problem. But when there's constipation and your backup is in, the, you know, there is backup in your colon, then that extra fermentation or sorry, extra gas production, I should say, is going to be adding to the load and it's going to be making you more backup. So people go, well, Roz, I've tried a plant-based diet or I've tried more high fiber, made me feel like crap. And I'm like, well, the reason is because you didn't address the motility. So motility, meaning how are things moving through your system? 
So we need to talk about that. We want to get their bowels in a rhythm. And sometimes we do need to add in a laxative or a motility agent of some sort. And people are like, whoa, really? But yes, we have to because we need to clear the backup. So we need to get that into a rhythm first. And then we look at all the other lifestyle factors like rhythmatizing the routine and getting into a routine, looking at hydrating their bowel movements more with things like obviously water and hydration, but also hydrating foods and foods that promote motility. And then from there, once they're actually getting into a rhythm, what we do is we start to look at the dietary side of things. Okay, what else can we add in in terms of diversity, fiber, soluble fiber, and building like a balanced plant-based plate? Can we get you in that department and eating around 45, 50 grams of fiber eventually? Like we'll get there eventually uh, a day. And then once you actually take them off the motility agent or the laxative and they nail all of the lifestyle factors, like they're sleeping well, and usually they sleep better once they start eating better. Uh, they're not chronically stressed. We've worked on stress management tools and they are, yeah, they're, they pretty much optimize the lifestyle factors and their diet is pretty much on point, you know, 80% of the time they're eating really well. They're eating whole food plant-based for the most part. And we usually start with breakfast and work our way up from there. Then when we stop the motility agents, things keep moving. I see it all the time. I had a client who was uh, basically standard American diet, went to junk food vegetarian, then junk food vegan. And then she went to whole food plant-based, but she came to me as a whole food plant-based eater and has been chronically constipated and backed up the entire time. But as soon as we got the bowels moving, and then eventually we kept that rhythm going. We took her off the motility agents and all the other things that were supporting the rhythm side of things. She was pooping like a champion. That's so right. It just goes to show. I know that it's not, it's not just, it's not just the food side of things. So if you're someone who has chronic constipation or history of it and you've tried to go plant-based and you feel like crap, there's a reason why. Totally. And so. I think we find that when you do make those changes initially, there might be a little bit of resistance in the beginning so you might start something that is, you know, worlds different to what you've been doing before and it's to the farest end of health as you possibly can. But you might find initially there might be some a bit of kickback. There might be a little bit of, you know, you might be still a little bit backed up or there might be a, a change in the microbes that are happening inside that gut. Your microbiome is changing and there might be a little bit of uh, maybe discomfort in the initial phases, but you are changing things for the better. You might there might be a die off of an overpowering bacteria in the gut that you do want to mm -hmm. try and you know bring back to a better level. So, initially, is it common to see um, when people uh, put in place new new ways of eating or new ways of of doing their daily lifestyle and routine? There's a bit of um, maybe things get a little bit worse before they get better. Is that common? So nothing to 100%. worry about. Perfect. And also I will add, if we're dealing with something like SIBO and I know that, or I kind of suspect it, that is totally addressed in like its own way. Um, but yes, hundred percent, that is the case. It takes a while. And I, I kind of call this the dip. So people kind of start, if you can picture like a huge pothole, right? You start in this place at the top uh, before you drop in of uninformed optimism. Like I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to, I'm going to kick butt and I'm going to feel better. You usually just things, you know, get better again. You kind of dip into this, you get into the dip, you fall in there mm -hmm. and you're in this place of informed pessimism at the bottom. And you're like, oh gosh, I didn't know this was going to be this hard. My gut is not responding. I'm feeling like crap or some sort of like, honestly, I don't know. It's really weird, but I always see clients have some sort of like life event go on in the first month that we're working together. And they're like, I just, I haven't been able to stick to things. I feel worse or what have you. Things are usually all muddled up in the little in the first little while, and I don't know why that happens, but it often does happen. 
And then finally, once you figure out what you're learning from that situation, and I'm going to guide my clients through that, but they end up in the other side in informed optimism where they're like, okay, things are feeling better and I'm feeling better, but it takes a while. And your gut takes a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time, but for some people it can take a lot of time for others. It takes a bit of time to adjust to the fiber load. That's why I usually go slowly. So I'll start with breakfast and then we'll usually graduate to a couple plant-based meals. If this is, if they're not already plant-based, um, we'll start with taking out the dairy for a couple of weeks. And I usually tell them, don't worry, it's just for a couple of weeks. It's never a couple of weeks. It's the whole time. Um, <laughs> and then we go towards like a couple of plant-based meals in the evening for dinner, which usually translates to leftovers for lunch. And then we kind of go from there, so on and so forth. So it's a gradual transition, but most of my clients who are not plant-based, they're starting at like 15, 20 grams of fiber a day. Mm-hmm. And then we slowly build up till they're around like 50, 60 grams of fiber. And it's so cool because then they start pooping like a champion. They're like, Roz, I thought I was so sensitive to all these plant foods. But honestly, this is what happens. When you take out the animal products, especially the dairy, you are able to tolerate all these plant foods so much better because you're not you're not causing all that um that upset and the inflammation and like because a lot of people are lactose intolerant too right of course so they're able to eat these foods that they labeled as food sensitivities for so long like i have a client who just um which is not done yet she has one more session with me and she's like Roz, i want to introduce gluten again and she's been off gluten for five or six years but she feels so fantastic that she's like my gut is ready to handle it and she was eating meat dairy eggs you know, daily, you name it. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool to see. And it takes time. But yes, there is some kickback for sure. You've got to push through that. And, and this goes on to something that we've in the media have been told over and over and over again, that things like dairy and things like dairy yogurt uh, have beneficial gut bacteria that we can introduce. And it's going to do us all these, you know, wonderful things. But as more studies come out, and I know you're big on looking at studies. Um, as more and more of these things come out, it's kind of telling us really the opposite. And I guess you kind of can look into anything and find the information that you want to find. It doesn't really matter what it is. But looking at, you know, studies done by the right place, funded by the right place, and, and doing it for the greater good rather than for a specific outcome that they want to see. Um, we've n- now looking at things like dairy yogurt and, and yogurt that comes from animals as not so much of you know what we're looking for in terms of trying to create a, a really nice even playing field in the gut microbiome and not you know pushing us towards that dysbiosis state that we don't want to get into so is that one of the main things that you take out immediately is that like the first thing that you tick off your list yeah usually dairy and believe it or not well red meat for sure but a lot of the times usually they've already given that up because it makes them feel like crap anyways. But uh, yeah, usually dairies first and also eggs because they're both really rich in saturated fat. So that is going to usually cause um, motility to slow down. And they're usually just really hard things for people to break down. But yeah, we know that the really big correlation that we see is like increase in saturated fat usually equates to more bio-loving bacteria, more dysbiosis in general. Usually, yeah, so saturated fat is like the biggest thing. So dairy and eggs tend to be like the highest sources. Um, and then, of course, like fish and stuff less so. But yeah, that's usually the first to go. And like to your point about the fermented foods that are dairy foods, like well, if we're going to get fermented foods in our diet, why wouldn't you just eat a plant food? Because then you're getting like when you're eating the dairy, okay, fine. You're maybe getting some bacteria in there. First off, like I will say, fermented foods are fantastic, but they're not technically probiotics. We don't know if those bacteria are making their way to our gut alive. I'm not saying don't eat fermented foods, but. I am saying like, you can't really treat that as a probiotic, but also 
hormones and you're still getting the hormones and the growth hormones and the excess estrogens and things like that that we don't need. If there's so many other fermented foods you can consume that are going to be treating your gut far better and then they have the fiber, right? So that's the, if it's a fermented food, great, but does it also have fiber and phytonutrients and things like that that we need? That's Absolutely. like, it's a package deal. We can't just treat it as like, okay, it's a fermented food, great. Like there's definitely levels of you know, things that we need to look for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we think we talk about this, myself and Matt talk about this all the time. We talk about fiber. We also talk about the polyphenols and the phytochemicals that you're missing out on when you opt for, well, like when we spoke about this, when it's like the big thing at the moment is make sure you get in the fiber and we love it. We think it's fantastic. The one thing, the one thing that we didn't want to happen was, you know, we get maybe big pharma get involved and they grab this fiber, they bleach it, they purify it to the point where it's now no longer what we intended it to be but we want it to come in with the the polyphenols and the color and all of the diversity that's involved in eating a whole food plant forward diet instead of trying to isolate the one thing and refine it to the point where it's now just as bad as it was before so trying to get in get the whole plant food in there and you're getting all these extra bundles of of chemicals that are going to do so good for your gut. This is what we were talking about so much when it's like, oh, we need to we need to talk about this more. Yeah, 100%. I think that that goes for anything. Like we tend to have this tendency like, oh, it's good. I'm going to supplement with that on its own. But it's like when I talk about fiber, I'm not talking about supplementation. I mean, I do use fiber supplements in my practice. They're really good for targeting bowel movements. But that's in addition to a 50 gram plus, you know, day of fiber. Like that's in addition to the, and you know, all of that. And like you said, the polyphenols are so important. That's actually a prebiotic. Polyphenols are prebiotics. And so we need to understand that this is a dynamic approach when it comes to eating the whole food. And yeah, you said it best. You said it exactly how I would want to say it. Great. Well, um, also moving on from there. So um, I know from my point of view, um, coming from a sports background, trying to enhance all the things to increase um Try for for me. We we want to try and increase performance, but that for me has never been about putting the throttle down all the time to the point where you're, you're broken. So we wanted to try and figure out where is that balance of you know jumping into parasympathetic and sympathetic constantly, and when we're working out and we're trying to get better at our sport, yes, we're probably going to be in sympathetic state. And we want to jump back into parasympathetic as much as possible to try and enhance the effects that we've gotten and that stimulus from the training. Um, So for me, things that I've noticed that really increase performance, like probably the number one thing would be sleep. So if we're not getting good quality sleep, things it's just a ripple effect of a downward spiral. So is sleep something that you recommend to your clients to enhance or ways that they can enhance their sleep to better their health and especially their gut microbiome? Because if we're not sleeping, there's obviously going to probably be some adverse effects to the gut microbiome there too. Yeah, and I will start by saying that sleep, like prioritizing sleep was the best thing I ever did for my gut beyond changes like obviously you can't be sleeping eight eight hours of night and be eating crap you know crappy food but yeah it was it's something that a lot of people resist like sleep is the least productive like I'm saying this both quotations (laughs) thing you can do technically speaking but it is literally the most productive your body does you know it does the gut has is doing a lot of cool work in the night like your liver is detoxifying your gut is forming stool like there's a lot going on there 
And I find that my clients who sleep the least amount, or at least they just aren't getting enough sleep or quality sleep, their gut is, is not relaxed enough for them to be able to have good elimination. And that's a huge factor. So I push sleep so hard. It's like, I know you don't want to do it, but let's get you sleeping. And sometimes that involves, you know, adding in um, herbal tinctures. I work with a certified herbal therapist and my clients get to see her for a consult so she can create an herbal tincture for them to help them sleep, like Skullcap, for example, which is really cool. And, um, or, you know, sometimes they use CBD or things like that. But I mean, either way, like I want them to sleep because most people are chronically undersleeping and a lot of people learn to live like it's kind of like plants, right? Plants can learn to live in like not the best conditions until eventually they die. But I mean, I've done this to so many of my plants. It's like you neglect them. They kind of learn to live and survive in that mode, but they're not thriving. So it's the same with humans. I think we learn to survive at a certain level of just like feeling Dis- not so great. Discomfort. And then... Yeah, exactly. It's the discomfort, but we don't notice it. We live in a comfort zone of discomfort is what I like to call it. So we're comfortable there because it's what we've always done, but then we're uncomfortable because we don't feel well. So I think until we can start to prioritize things like rest and sleep, we're not going to be able to actually thrive. And you, like you said, performance will increase, energy throughout the day, of course, will increase, your digestion will increase, which therefore means you're absorbing more nutrients. Like it's just it goes round and round and round. And of course, like lack of sleep is actually perceived as a physical stress in the body. So, mm, absolutely. Yeah, oh, that's cool. For sleep. Great. Well, um, also saying, saying that, so once we do sleep, and typically, and I know for me, my motility is best first thing in the morning, and I've got it down to a routine that is pretty much almost to within a 10 minute period of it, of every day. Oh my goodness. You're one of those. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's, so it's just kind of the same all the time. And it really, and it does, it changes the most when I jump on an airplane and I go to a different time zone and things are just all over the shop. So I pretty much, I have fasted and all my plane flights for the last five or six years. And it just made me feel so much better when I landed. But in terms of trying to get that regular routine of going to the toilet, is there something that you can do or something that you can put in place or like a routine that you can do to try and help the, uh, the process of that happening of a morning? What, what kind of things can someone who's watching this be like, oh, I'm going to introduce that's a very easy thing to introduce to help me go to the bathroom first thing in the morning? Yeah, so I'll say that the reason you're having that bowel movement first first thing in the morning is because your cortisol levels are actually naturally supposed to be, if you are in a good circadian rhythm, or highest around 6 a.m. So if you're waking up, you know, around 6 or 7 or whatever, you're kind of close to that time where your cortisol levels are pretty high. So that's usually going to go hand in hand with initiating a bowel movement. Um, and so it also is when your gastrocolic reflex is strongest. So this is something in the body where if you drink or eat any food or liquids, um, and some people, for some people, this doesn't need to happen for them to have a bowel movement, but for most people it does. So you'll drink something or you'll eat something, it stretches the stomach and it goes, your stomach sends a signal to your brain and goes, okay, we're ready to have a bowel movement. So then uh, you will have a mass movement initiated where that's a mass movement of stool through the colon. So most people want to be having a bowel movement in the morning. And my goal for my clients is that they're having that one glorious, fully emptying bowel movement in the morning. They don't need to worry about it the rest of the day. I mean, there's a lot of people who say you should be pooping three times a day after each meal. And I'm like, well, why would you want to do that if you can just empty in full in the morning, have one great bowel movement and not have to stress about going to the bathroom two more times in the day? I don't think that that needs to be happening. As long as you're fully emptying by the end of the day, meaning you're emptying all of the excess fiber, waste, toxins, all the stuff from yesterday, and you can do a truth test 
figure this out um, in full the next day, then you're in the clear. So when it comes to in the morning, um, again, so that timing is going to be important. So if you're waking up later, like at like nine or 10 o'clock, I don't mean most people are going to not be waking up that late in the midweek, but you may notice that you have less of an urge. So again, it has to do with the timing piece. So if you want to have a bowel movement first thing in the morning, set aside time in the morning for it because people rush in the morning. And this is the biggest, really big thing. And I was just talking to a client about this today, actually. She like rushes off to go do yoga. And I'm like, great for you, yoga. But you are still stressed out when you wake up in the morning. You're rushing out of the house. Yes, Yes. exactly. It's just the irony. And I love this client to bits and pieces, but stress is the biggest thing we're working on. Um, So set aside time. So believe it or not, you want to start thinking about having a bowel movement. I know this sounds strange, but if your mind is elsewhere, you're thinking about work, you're thinking about social events, you're thinking about whatever, finances, whatever it is, like you really want to start to have your brain think about it because the gut brain connection works that way. And this actually works like a T for me. If I don't get the urge first thing, I'll usually, um, and I'll talk about this water first thing, but I will start to think about it. And that will actually initiate something, some movement down there because your brain and your gut are very intricately connected. We know that. And so you want to start thinking about it. You want to set aside some time. You don't want to be rushed in the morning, like give yourself ample time and have half a liter of water. So a couple cups of water first thing in the morning, that might actually initiate some movement. Um, and also moving your body can also be a good thing. So it doesn't need to be like a strenuous gym workout for some people that may not do the trick. Sometimes just walking can be, you know, going for a morning walk or a morning run can do it. I mean, people will tell you all the time, I go for a run and then all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom. That's the me. goal would be that you could do it before. <laughs> yeah, is it? Okay. Which is great. If you're having your bowel movement before, you're in clear. But if you're not, then I can totally see how that's an issue. Um, so sometimes, yeah, having some water or having a piece of fruit first thing. I really like kiwis for motility, um, less so for initiating a bowel movement because, I mean, food in general or fruit because it's hydrating in general will do that. Uh, but just in general for motility, kiwis can be really great. Um, I also like if you want to have a bowel movement in the morning, like after breakfast, I really love smoothies because they're extra hydrating and they have that extra volume. So again, when we're talking about the gastrocolic reflex, that can be really helpful for filling up the stomach with that heavier volume and stretching it out. Um, and just, yeah, for extra hydration as well. So I'd say water is the biggest thing. Move your body, but wake up a little bit early. Give yourself more time and start thinking about it. And honestly, you can actually train your body to have a bowel movement at the same time every day. It just takes time. Take yourself to the washroom at the same time every morning. Sit down on the toilet. Stay there for a maximum of five minutes. Use a squatty potty or something to elevate your legs so you're um, your eliminatory organs are at the right angle. And if nothing happens, get off the toilet and leave and come back and try it again tomorrow. You may have the urge an hour later. That's fine. But you can slowly start to train your gut to have, an, you know, elimination at the same time. But overall, I'd say um, getting your routine, like, pretty, pretty religious is, is going to be important for that. So eating dinner around the same time and eating lunch around the same time and then waking up around the same time, going to sleep around the same time. Those things are going to keep your gut in a rhythm. So if you're training your gut to have a bowel movement in the morning, but your schedule's all over the place, it's probably not going to work very well. Your gut operates like your heart does. It needs rhythm in order to be in like that sync mode. So just something to think about. Awesome. There. I love that. That's that's perfect. And I think structure and routine um, 
and making that structure and routine fit in with your lifestyle so it's not an extra stress is, you know, you might want to put all these things in place and have all these parameters and boundaries that you set, but set those boundaries to decrease stress, not to increase stress. Because I was putting all these things in place for me and I just noticed that, wow, I'm putting all these things in place to decrease my stress and it's just stressing me out even more. (laughs) So you got to try. The irony. Oh, it's the worst. But in saying that, um, putting some things in place and preparing, I felt like I'm the best when I'm prepared. And if I've got a fridge full of good quality whole plant foods, my eating for the whole week is better. I feel like I want to train and everything kind of snowballs. So that's what I wanted to get into next. I would like to know just as a general rule, and I know it changes regularly because it's good to change the food up because number one, it's stimulating. Number two, you're getting a lot of different nutrients in. But is there a type of day of eating that uh, you found has worked best for you in terms of you feel satiated, you feel like you've gotten all of the nutrients you possibly need, you've hit your fiber targets and you've enjoyed the meals at the same time? Yeah. Are you talking about like an overall day of eating? Yep. Yep. How would you go throughout the day? What and like what type of schedule would you stick with? Yeah. So usually I'm not, I used to be, okay, so I preface this by saying I used to be a 5.30 a.m. wake up, hit the gym, and you know do my workout and and go home and then start my work day and go to my office job and all that it's changed a lot since the pandemic for me um and i i do prioritize rest a lot more and i usually get a walk-in in the morning and then sometimes i'll go like mountain biking and stuff after work but um so typically i'm waking up between like 6 30 and 7 30 on my sleep in days honestly right. uh so i'll get up and i'll have some water and i'm someone who is now you know, adapted to eating breakfast a little bit later. So I used to get really, really hungry first thing in the morning. And I think because I am prioritizing rest a little bit, my body has changed when it wants food. So I'm usually eating breakfast around like nine or nine thirty, sometimes even ten o'clock, which is pretty late. So that- and way later. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, you see that like like as soon as I got back from the gym, it'd be you know seven o'clock. I needed breakfast, and of course that's after like a big workout and things, but. Yeah, no, it's changed. So I eat breakfast around like between nine and 10 usually now. And I'll have water in the morning. And if I'm really hungry, I'll have a piece of fruit first just to, you know, um, to satiate me until I can get my breakfast built. But usually I will have, yeah, my first um, meal will be, sorry, a smoothie. But I pack a ton of things in there. Lots of people will talk about smoothies being like, oh, there's not enough in there. Trust me, there's enough in there. (laughs) Um, Or I'll have oatmeal usually or some sort of like muesli style cereal. Or if it's the weekend, I'll have like, you know, I'll make something more fun, like a uh, tofu scramble or something. But yeah, usually it's a smoothie. And I put in, you know, frozen fruit, I put in a frozen banana, I put in a couple of tablespoons of nut butter, I'll put in a tablespoon or so of flax or chia, Um, I'll put in some soluble fiber powder just for extra kicks, why not? Um, I put in greens, I try and switch up my greens and my fruit often, so it's a mix, sometimes I'll do Swiss chard, sometimes I'll even do beet greens, did you know you can take the greens off the top of the beetroot and use those in a smoothie? Uh, You know, and I'll try kale and spinach and all of it, so um, I switch it up. And what else? Non-dairy milk. I love soy milk. Organic soy milk is my jam and it's really high in plant protein and also has a couple grams of fiber per cup, which is sweet. And what else do I put in there? I think that's pretty much it. And sometimes I'll do a protein powder. I only, I just, cause I like the taste and I don't usually rely on that because again, I'm not an athlete in the sense of like working out six days a week or anything like that. Um, the average person doesn't need to add a protein powder and I don't think, um, but it's just something I do like to add in there every once in a while for extra you know, punch in my smoothie. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then from there, I'll usually have a snack. Sometimes I'll do like hummus and veg or I'll do like crackers and hummus or I'll do um, piece of fruit again or something. So more, I mean, there's lots of fruit. I do not limit fruit. I'm trying to think what else or I'll have a piece of toast with, you know, avocado or something like that and sprouts. And that'll be my snack if I feel like it. But typically I, I make my smoothie big enough that I don't actually need something until lunch. I used to snack a lot more and I realized it was because I was not eating enough at my meals. And I fixed that and I was like, okay, there's nothing wrong with snacking. But when I eat my full meals, I don't actually feel like I need to snack as much. So lunch is almost always leftovers. Or I'll do a big salad where I'll put like chickpeas, some sort of cooked grain uh, with like avocado, some cucumber, some sort of other chopped veggies like radish or what have you, sprouts. I'll put a dressing on there, either homemade or store-bought if it's a good one. Um, And then, yeah, I love like farro or cooked uh, salt berries or rye berries which are not things people usually think about but I throw in the cooked mm. grain into there and yeah I'll throw that all together and have a salad or I'll have leftovers so Great. leftovers will be obviously from dinner and I love like I'll have tacos or I'll have curries or I'll have stews of any kind or um, I love stir fries um, sometimes we do veggie burgers homemade veggie burgers with roasted potatoes uh, there's so many different things. I, I usually switch up my dinners all the time, but there's always going to be this tri- kind of like balanced plate concept of I'm trying to get a ton of veggies in, so somewhere around half my plate, and then around a quarter legumes and beans, like a quarter of my plate roughly, um, usually ends up being like a half cup or so, and then uh, a quarter is going to be around whole grains, but I usually end up doing more. I love my whole grains, so I'll do you know a cup or so of brown rice, but I don't measure anything. It's just kind of the portions it ends up being. Uh, but usually picking off those boxes, though, for yep. whole grains, legumes and beans, and then at least a few different types of vegetables, usually, and some sort of healthy fat in there, whether it's like tahini-based dressing or avocado or nuts and seeds added on top, like Buddha bowls or my jam. Oh. So that's kind of, and then sometimes, let's be real, I'll have a piece of dark chocolate or two or three um, or some sort of other plant-based dessert, uh, popcorn or what have you. But um, if I'm eating enough at dinner, I usually feel pretty satiated and I'll just have like a a warm drink with nut milk in the end of the evening. That's awesome. It sounds almost identical <laughs> to what my day looks like pretty much, um, except I might yeah, just chuck nailed it. it. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much just said my day in a nutshell. I usually like to start the day, um, I'll get up. The first thing I do is I find water straight away um, and then I'll jump into, I'll usually have a, a bowl of oats uh first thing and I'll just load it up with some berries and maybe chuck in a teaspoon of cacao or something like that and mix it all up and then maybe if I want to as well chuck in a little bit of protein powder just to bump up the protein so I can make sure I can get enough in during the day um, but the rest of the day seems very much the same it's you know sourdough wraps with seaweed sheets and um, and sprouts and just wrap it up with some almond butter and just eat it like that as a snack on the go things like that so Amazing. I think yeah just just trying to uh, I love mixing maybe not the not recommended but not the not the go-to so if I've got um if I have a a tempeh dish for instance or a tofu scramble on um on some Ezekiel bread or sourdough or something like that I'll chop you know strawberries or I'll put blueberries on top of that as well and it's just like strange it's it's like a it's a, a sweet it's like a sweet savory bowl but it's not it's it's a bit unique but I like to never I never like I like to cross those boundaries especially when it comes to trying to get in lots of different colors and I think if my plate is filled with lots of different colors it's organic as organic as possible um, depending on where you live I think you're going to be covering all your bases in terms of getting in your macronutrients and then you're just going to be crushing big bulk amounts of phytonutrients fiber 
and all of the good things that come along with them with your vitamins and minerals. So I think for people, if they're looking to um, start to add in a few things here and there, if you just look at whole plant, if you look at whole plant foods in general, if you look at whole plant foods in general, um, you're going to be getting in all the things that you need specifically to start to create that healthy gut microbiome, um, which is, I think, at the crux of everything in terms of our health um, and especially even performance. And this is, I speak up to a lot of athletes day to day and they're just like, oh, like what supplements should I take? And I'm just like, what's your food look like? What's your sleep look like? What's your hydration look like? Um, what's your, your stress state look like? What's your work life look like? Um, and then maybe supplements if, if we think it's necessary. And if you start, you know, really pushing the envelope, um, and wanting to, you know, be in that, you know, top 1% in the world of what you do, then yeah, maybe we can chuck in some supplements to help aid you to get to where you need to be. And whether it's, you know, some type of adaptogen herb to help bring you down when you're so stimulated throughout your training, you're training for three hours and you need to, you know, find that parasympathetic uh, and you're finding it hard to, and you can't drop back out of that because you're so stressed about an upcoming competition, there might be some really cool herbs that we can kind of chuck in to help aid that recovery period for you. So that's super interesting. And, and your, your day of eating sounds delicious. I'm actually so hungry right now. I, ha- I haven't eaten yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's morning for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. And I usually oh. I do the same thing. Um, I was going to ask you as well, what um, do you recommend to your clients at any point? Is there any type of fasting? Um, is that fasting? What does fasting look like for our gut microbes and our microbiome? And is that something that, you know, you might even want to do? on a semi-regular occasion? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So I will say that it depends on the person. So yep. for some people like myself, I can't do prolonged fasts. Like I, I just, I know myself and female hormones are really susceptible to changes. Well, there's, they can see negative, negative changes, I want to say, in response to fasting because female hormones are more susceptible to, um, yeah, feeding times, patterns, and then also just, changes in sleep patterns and things like that. So just a lot more sensitivity there on the, the female side of things. But in general, there are there's some really good research to look at uh, time-restricted feeding, especially for IBS, for people who are dealing with a lot of those classic symptoms. So, you know, anything between obviously 12 hours is a standard regular overnight fast that hopefully everyone is doing. Uh, but beyond that, up to like 18 hours, we see a lot of benefit there because you are technically giving your gut a break from food. So naturally that would uh, result in fewer symptoms because there's a greater period of time where you're not digesting and then also for things to keep moving through the system. So that's kind of the bulk of the research I've seen. I think, you know, three-day fasts and things like that, we're kind of entering into this territory where there is a risk of making things worse in your gut only because of the fact that you are cutting off the food source for your fiber degrading bacteria, those bacteria that we want to have in the gut. And if you're cutting off their food source, what they typically do in a prolonged fasting period, again, I'm talking three, four days or whatever, not that, you know, most people aren't doing a fast that long, but I just want to share how, how this plays out, but those fiber degrading bacteria are going to munch on the next best thing. And that is the gut lining. So we know that. And that's something that we need to consider. I'd say like, you know, there are some fasting periods, uh, you know, there's a lot of different fasting trends you can do, but time-restricted eating tends to have the best benefit from what I've seen in the research around that 18-hour period, um, you know, with regards to also considering the, um, 
your own balance with what you need to, you know, for your, for your feeding patterns and things like that, if you're feeling hungry or what have you. So I don't know, what type of fasting do you do? Is that something that you've taken part in? Yeah. So I, well, typically I try and do, as you said, that overnight 12 hours, at least Um, 12 to 14 hours. I probably won't eat for, I usually have my first meal around about say 10, between 10 and 11 o'clock. And then I usually cut eating off say two hours before I go to bed or try to anyway unless I'm mega, mega hungry, I've had a huge day of training and I'll try and add something in there right at the end. But I typically try and only have that eating window of around about probably 10 hours or so. Roughly, I've got that eating window of 10 hours. Um, And if my training volume is down and it's low, then it'd probably be longer. I'll probably try and only eat between an eight-hour window. Um, But I've I've just found that I probably don't need as much. So for instance, when I made the transition from eating an omnivorous diet to a plant-based diet, at that particular time, I was told by all the experts that I needed for my size and where I wanted to get to in terms of um, competing in strength, that I needed to be eating 210 to 220 grams of protein a day. And so I was aiming for this type of range and it was a lot. And so I pushed for that range and pushed for that range. And I was hitting that range on a regular basis. And then once I went plant-based, I started transitioning into a a lower amount of protein, but it had zero effect on my strength. It had zero effect on how I felt. It had zero effect on my recovery speed. To be honest, like since going plant-based, and I'm not saying this is the reason because the transition for me, I did it like yourself. It was overnight. It was just a, just a quick, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I did it. And I since then have hit, you know, personal best records on, um, each of my say three raw lifting movements like squat, bench press and deadlift. They never changed. And if anything, they've gotten a little bit better, but I think they would have gotten better regardless. So I don't think going plant-based has had an effect on that. And then also the restricted eating time windows. Uh, I was also told, for a lot of the time, as soon as you get up, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And it's like, okay, that might be, that might be the case, but there, we were kind of pushed into the idea that we had to have breakfast at, you know, seven in the morning every day. And I've kind of pushed that back a lot. And that had zero effect on, you know, my, you know, my performance and the way that I felt, to be honest, I actually felt a little bit better having breakfast between 10 and 11 o'clock and then stopping my eating around about 8 PM. So yeah, for me, yeah, I guess it's just a, not a fast in general, but more so just a restricted window of eating um, and and not just kind of going with what I was told as a kid to, you know, have your meal, have your first meal at, at seven, your next one at 12, your next one at have a snack in between there and have your next one at 7 p.m. Um, so just trying to change that dynamic just a little bit. Uh, but to be honest, I've, I've yeah. found that since going plant-based, I've decreased my protein now anywhere from 120 grams a day to 160 grams a day depending on what is required of me in that week of training so and I've Mm -hmm. haven't lost haven't lost any weight haven't lost any strength I'm sleeping great and um, I think that's a big myth that I've wanted to debunk for such a long time that I was definitely much more bloated much more gassy having the 210 to 220 grams of protein and now I'm having only plant-based protein and a roughly, let's say on an average, 140 to 150 grams a day of protein. And I'm just as strong, just as fit, just as fast, sleeping great, 
recovering well and doing all of the competitions that I want to do um, with no problem at all. That's fantastic. And I, I love that you just, you know, you can drop, oh, yeah, I'm getting 140, 150 grams of protein a day. And most people are like, is that even possible on a plant-based diet? But here you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And it's like it's it's so doable. And for a lot of people, um, they may not want to go down the path of protein powders. And that's great. That's fine. That's cool because um, Matt and I very strongly believe that you can do all the things that you do need to do on a purely – uh, whole food, plant-based diet without having the supplements. But the supplements are there as a bit of a, um, uh, uh, a, a way to mitigate anything that you may be missing. So if you're taking the time to educate yourself on what you might need to get in and, you know, if you're struggling to hit your fiber for whatever reason, you've just jumped into this new type of diet, but you want to increase your fiber. And let's just say every month you want to increase your fiber by five grams a day and you just do it slowly but surely and you're just trying to work and build it up. You know, adding in a, a, a fiber supplement might be a great thing to do just to bump it up just a little bit, just to put you in the space that you need to be. And so you can start to have these effects going on. And then the same thing goes with, um, you know, protein as well. If, if you're loving your smoothies and you want to bump your protein up by 15 or 20 grams, having a really good organic, good quality protein that has everything in there that it needs to help your gut. And to be honest, um, having a protein that can actually be beneficial for the gut. So trying to find something that has good quality strains of bacteria or, a uh, a, a gut matrix of some description to help aid the digestion process and make it light on the stomach and absorbable and have your stomach assimilate it really, really well. And something that's not going to be harsh on your stomach, something that's not organic, something that's probably not even what it says it is on the label. Um, and going to a reputable source is probably the best thing. And that goes for all supplements in general. Um, you want to make sure that you're getting them from quality, quality sources and, and making sure that you're using them sparingly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that, especially I will say one thing about the protein powders, just because you mentioned it for some people, they find like there has been, you know, a lot I've seen a lot, at least in my practice where a lot of people get symptoms in response to eating or having protein powders, they can increase gas bloating for people. So you have to be careful about which ones you choose. Absolutely. And so everything you just said is absolutely what I would echo. Yeah. 100%. Well, Look, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on board the Plant Podcast and giving us some insight into how you approach plant-based nutrition and specifically how to help heal people's guts. And um, I'm no doubt we're probably going to have many conversations in the next few months to come, uh, no doubt, because I do want to get you back on and talk about the ins and outs yeah. of, of the of the microbes that get around our gut and, and specifically those short-chain fatty acids that we love so much. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, James. It was an absolute pleasure. And yeah, it was a great conversation. So great. I appreciate you. Great. Thanks so much. And have enjoy the rest of your night and enjoy some dark chocolate for me. <laughs>